So Mike, what is something that all teens almost universally hate? Well, I don't know. Universally, I can't think of a lot of things, but I'd say like changing directions, you know, abruptly. That's that's pretty disruptive. That's maybe the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, I that's exactly what I was thinking. So the pivoting and losing focus, it leads to a lot of wasted engineering effort and it drives PMs crazy when they need to rescope and realign teams constantly. But sometimes, sometimes it works out, like in Samsung's case, who in their early days were masters of diversification and shifting focus. Okay, interesting. I, I actually love this story. Didn't they start out as like something crazy, like a fish importer or something like that? Shh, we, can, we can't reveal it until we, we got to roll the credits and <laughs> introduce our sponsors first. Oh no. All right. Well, then in that case, let's roll that intro. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. And before we begin, we have a couple sponsors to thank. As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort based trainings. 
We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us, go to gigantic.is, that's gigantic.is, and save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Okay, now let's get into it. As we know today, Samsung is a South Korean-based conglomerate that includes several subsidiaries. It's one of the largest businesses in Korea, producing nearly one-fifth of the company's total exports with a primary focus on electronics, heavy industry, construction, and defense. But they also have businesses that include advertising and insurance and entertainment. Yeah, so basically they are gigantic. Yeah, and, and much more than we actually see here in North America. But even here, they're a behemoth, um, and they're, you know, they're at the height of the high-tech and sleek design, and it's difficult to believe that Samsung was once a one-man grocery store trading local produce in South Korea. Wait, I don't know if I knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Samsung was founded as a grocery store in 1938 by Lee Byung-chul. He started his business in Daegu, Korea, trading noodles and other goods that were produced around the city, and then he eventually would export them to China and some of its provinces. Now, in Korean, the word Samsung means three stars. The name was chosen by Lee Byung-chul, whose vision for his company was to become powerful and everlasting like stars in the sky. That's something that, I don't know, Samsung has actually lived up to so far. But let's back up slightly, and, and I think it's important to understand the political climate in Korea at this time. Between 1910 and 1945, Korea was actually ruled as part of the Empire of Japan. This was a tumultuous time for Koreans. By 1932, the ratio of Japanese land ownership had increased from 8% to 53%. The landowners were mostly Japanese, while the tenants were all Koreans. As often occurred in Japan itself, tenants had to pay over half their crop as rent, forcing many to send wives and daughters into factories or even prostitution so that they could pay taxes. Japanese authorities dealt with insurgency severely. So when villagers were suspected of hiding rebels, entire village populations are said to have been herded into public buildings, sometimes churches, and massacred. Now, there's a lot to this history which we're not going to cover, but it's important to understand the climate which Lee Byung-chul was living in when he started his import-export grocery store. Now, his store, which exported out of Masan, which is a port village, it's the same port city that the Japanese were using to export their Korean exploits. And because of this proxy, he was able to cozy up to the Japanese and even receive loans to grow his business when many Korean businesses were honestly unable to receive any funding. Virtually all industries were owned either by Japan-based corporations or by Japanese corporations in Korea. As of 1942, indigenous capital constituted only 1.5% of the total capital invested in Korean industries. Korean entrepreneurs were charged interest rates 25% higher than their Japanese counterparts. So it was really difficult for large Korean enterprises to emerge. And yet Samsung actually persevered. In this time, Lee Byung-chul's father, Lee Chan-woo, financed 
the independence movement during the Japanese colonial period. And so this is pretty risky, but he was actually putting money behind the rebels. And because of this, Lee Byung-chul in his teenage years met Sigmund Ray, who eventually became Korea's first president after World War II. So when World War II ended, the armed forces of the United States and the Soviet Union, they occupied the region and they divided Korea into what we know today as North and South Korea. So while the Japanese were forced to leave the now independent South Korea, their assets remained in the country and the government began giving out those assets for cents on the dollar in an effort to begin rebuilding the country and the economy. So this gave Lee Byung-chul the opportunity to expand his business, this time to the city of Seoul. But he was forced to leave when the Korean War broke out shortly after between 1950 and 1953, which once again threw the country into disarray. Many businesses at that time, they didn't make it. But somehow, Samsung was able to survive. After the war, the United States helped to rebuild South Korea, providing billions of dollars in aid. And as you might recall, Lee Byung-chul was friends with the new Korean president, Sing Mun Rae making Samsung a preferred receiver of these government funds. What Lee did with these funds after a quick break. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. Before the break, we explored Samsung's humble beginnings as a grocery store and small goods exporter to China during one of the most tumultuous times in Korea's history, spanning World War II and the Korean War. But Lee Byung-chul prevailed. After World War II, with access to cheap capital, he benefited from the new protectionist policies adopted by the Korean government, whose aim was to help large domestic conglomerates by shielding them from competition and providing them with easy financing. In the late 1950s, the company acquired three of Korea's largest commercial banks, as well as an insurance company and firms that made cement and fertilizer and other things. Yeah, these were completely different businesses than the ones Lee was used to running, but it set the course for what would become the company we know today as Samsung. This early diversification became a successful growth strategy for Samsung, which rapidly expanded into, as Mike said, insurance and securities and retail. Lee was known to say that he managed Samsung with the intention of contributing to the greater good of the nation. So many of his acquisitions and expansions were driven by answering the specific needs of the Korean people at that time. In the 1960s, Samsung entered the electronics industry with the formation of several electronics-focused divisions. Samsung Electronics Devices, Samsung Electromechanics, Samsung Corning, Samsung Semiconductor and Telecommunications. During this period, Samsung even acquired a life insurance company. Additionally, a Samsung Sanyo partnership began, paving the way for the production of TVs, microwaves, and other consumer products. In 1970, Samsung Sanyo produced its first black and white TV, expanded its reach into shipbuilding, petrochemicals, and aircraft engines. And over the next decade, Samsung also produced transistor black and white TVs, color TVs, refrigerators, electronic desk calculators, air conditioners, and a lot more. 
1978, the company had reached the landmark of having produced 5 million TVs. By 1974, Samsung Heavy Industries was one of the largest shipbuilders in the world. In the late 1970s, the company even established Samsung Electronics America and the Suwon R&D Center. When the country suffered heavily from the oil shocks of the 1970s, Lee realized that the Korean economy was still weak in many ways. And in response, despite being in the midst of treatment for gastric cancer in 1976, he put everything on the line to enter the semiconductor business as a final contribution to his company and country. He realized his vision turned out to be much more difficult than he expected, though. When he met with computer experts and businessmen in Tokyo in 1983, he was told that he would regret not offloading his semiconductor business right then and there. At the time, the price of semiconductor chips didn't even come close to production costs, and even then, they're pretty hard to sell. But despite opposition from even his own executives, he decided to forge ahead. In every business, there's risk, he would say, and Samsung only has a future when it takes on and overcomes these kind of dangers. In 1980, Samsung entered the telecommunications hardware industry with another acquisition. Initially building telephone switchboards, Samsung quickly expanded into telephone and fax systems, which would eventually become the mobile phone manufacturing. In the early 1980s, Samsung expanded to Germany, Portugal, and New York. 1982, Samsung Printing Solutions was founded, and this subsidiary of the company delivered digital solutions to the printing industry. Following year, the company started producing personal computers, and in 1984, Samsung sales reached 1 trillion won, which would be like $700 million, roughly. Yeah, which is just incredible rapid expansion across all industry sectors. And a lot of this funding, though, came from the Korean government. And this Greece would lead to trouble for their executives as time goes on. And in 1987, Samsung's founder died, leaving his son Lee Kuan Hee in charge of Samsung. Here's a clip from Al Jazeera on the transition. On his father's death in 1987, Lee took the helm of a business that he would turn into South Korea's dominant family conglomerate, or Chaebol. He focused on increasing the ambition of the electronics arm, famously urging his staff to change everything except your wives and children. The company was able to take this vision and able to dole it out into, uh, you could say, ideological tracts that uh, they would hand out to employees and that employees would study. Uh, they, they would read his words like they were literally a page out of the Bible. More on Lee Kun Hee when we return after a quick break. Before the break, we were discussing Lee Kun-hee, Lee Chiu-han's predecessor as CEO at Samsung. Lee Kun-hee was a different type of leader. He was more brash and flashy than his father was. In 1993, Lee Kun-hee received a 30-minute video created by Samsung Broadcasting Center with footage of employees refitting a defective laundry machine by chafing off the edges with a knife. In a rage, Lee called the Seoul office immediately. Yeah, he's noted as saying, Quote, record this conversation. I have repeatedly stressed the importance of quality management, and this is the result? Fly in everyone, chief executive officers and management executives to Frankfurt. This marked the beginning of Chairman Lee's trademark business strategy, the new management initiative, credited for mapping the group's transition from quantity to quality and its emergence as a global technology powerhouse. Lee Kun-hee spearheaded the reformation of thought processes by implementing ideas such as, change comes when we trust each other, walk the right path, don't drag others down, and don't be afraid of criticism. 
he proposed heading in the same direction when it came to change. In 1995, Chairman Lee abolished academic qualifications in the official hiring process, which was really unconventional at the time. And he removed the dress code for female employees so they could do away with gender discrimination. And he also introduced an annual salary system instead of a seniority-based pay system to attract top talent. This is extraordinary stuff, especially at that time. And we haven't even got to the burning incident yet. Of course, right? So as you can see, Lee Kun, he, he was obsessed with quality. Quality over quantity. In 1994, Samsung Electronics Mobile Division rushed their product release, which raised the defect rate of the group's mobile phones to 11.8%, unacceptable level. In January of 1995, Chairman Lee ordered all of the defective phones to be replaced, and two months later, in March, 150,000 defective phones were piled up outside of the Samsung Gummy Factory. Around 2,000 employees gathered to watch 10 employees take hammers to the phones, and then they set the broken pieces on fire. It was shock therapy to say the least, but it worked. Yeah, in 1995, Samsung's wireless phones, domestic market share rose to 19%, climbing to the top position from fourth place the previous year. Chairman Lee's high standards for quality management served as a foothold for the now globally popular Galaxy series of Samsung-designed mobile devices. And we see this again in 2012, three weeks prior to the Samsung Galaxy S3 launch, the texture of the phone's back cover did not come out as planned. Some 100,000 covers had already been manufactured and the outbound shipments were loaded on a plane, but Chairman Lee made no exceptions when it came to a zero tolerance for poor quality. This time around, there was no burning ceremony, but 100,000 covers were discarded and promptly replaced. Of course, the company wasn't without controversy during this time. In one such case, Lee Kun Hee was found guilty in 1996 of actually bribing former president Ro Tai Wu. He was sentenced to two years in prison, a sentence that the judge commuted, and ultimately he was pardoned in 1997. In April of 2008, Lee was indicted on charges of breach of trust and tax evasion as part of a scheme, and shortly thereafter, he resigned as chairman of Samsung. In July, he was convicted of tax evasion, and then he was subsequently fined approximately $80 million and sentenced to three years suspended jail time. Again, he was pardoned by the South Korean government in 2009, so he could remain on the International Olympic Committee, which would lead South Korea's successful bid for the 2018 Winter Olympics. And then, Lee's son takes over Samsung in 2014. Here's a clip from Al Jazeera about this transition. In 2014, he suffered a major heart attack. He spent the rest of his life in a Samsung hospital. The empire now rests on the shoulders of Lee's son, Jae Yong, also known as JY Lee. He was also imprisoned after he became embroiled in the corruption scandal that led to the impeachment of former president Park Yun-hae. Found guilty of bribing Park with millions of dollars in exchange for government help with a merger, he received a five-year sentence. But after a year in prison, an appeal court freed him and dismissed most of the corruption charges against him. And even while he was behind bars, Samsung posted record profits. So Samsung managed to remain close to the Korean government, whether the government liked it or not. And I guess that's what happens when you create 20% of a country's GDP. Yeah, Samsung grew out of a desire to meet the demands of the South Korean people, and many of its acquisitions were done to improve the quality of services for the people of the country. This made it a natural ally of the South Korean government. 
Samsung's dominance was most recently created by its focus on quality, but also propelled by its incredibly close relationships to the South Korean government, who had aided in its growth throughout the years by providing funding and lifting restrictions even when needed. And so that's the story of Samsung's start, starting from that little grocery store to now one of the largest conglomerates in the world. So we'll be back next week. For Mike Belsito, I'm Michael Saka, and this is Rocketship.fm. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It is your support that keeps the show going. If you can, take a second and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps out the show so much. We're also part of the Podglomerate Network, and if you'd like to listen to more great shows from the Podglomerate, go to thepodglomerate.com to see the full show listings. This episode was mixed and mastered by Court Deans. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. Go to productcollective.com and get access to our weekly newsletter, live video interviews, Slack community, product job board, and a whole lot more. Again, just go to productcollective.com.